Turns with me to the book of Numbers. <clears throat> so, if this is your first time with us, we're taking a break out of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the book of John. We've been through the first five chapters so far, and at the end of the John five, Jesus is dealing with some Pharisees who don't believe in him. He's produced miracles. He's fulfilled prophecies. He has spoke wonders. And all they can see is a man from Joseph and Mary, a human being. And so Jesus responds to them and says, Well, if you would have believed Moses, for Moses wrote about me, you would believe in me. So what we decided to do is go through the Old Testament, specifically the law, the first five books of the law, and look to where Jesus is being portrayed in the Old Testament. So we've covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and today is Numbers. What has made the Old Testament complicated as we've been reading through this is kind of how it's been presented over the years. It's kind of similar to children's nursery rhymes. You know, short stories that cover a wide range of topics, uh, bizarre at times, but really have no connection to each other. So when you read about, let's say, Jack and Jill and Humpty to Dumpty, they They don't fit together. Or the three blind mice and the three little pigs. There's no connection there either. Most of us grow up hearing of David and Goliath or the 12 spies that went into Canaan or Daniel in the lion's den or the amazing story of the resilience of Joseph. But there's really no connection to these stories. They're just kind of like nursery rhymes. They're interesting and bizarre at the same time. Because we have disconnected them from the story of the Bible or the story of redemption as we know it here, the only application we find really is moralism. Be like this individual. Do what they did. Have bravery. Other parts of the Bible kind of fit into categories we don't want to deal with either. So like, for instance, creation. Creation becomes an apologetic against evolution, which is not why it was written. Or the law. The law is how we are going to get America back under the blessings of God. And if we humble ourselves and pray, then God's blessing will come back to this great nation. And that's how we use the law. But that's not the intention of it. And because it's disconnected, when it comes to these bizarre acts of God's, the weird sexual sins of Israel and the death of thousands, we simply say, "Uh, that's weird. Here, kids, here's some ice cream. (laughs) We don't know what to do with it. Let's just uh, not talk about it. Distract ourselves from it. Well, Numbers fits into this category of books. The name of the book alone keeps people away from reading it. Oh, this must be about all the different tribes and stuff, and that will not help me in love and obey God, so let's move on to uh, Psalms and Proverbs. Well, the English title, Numbers, comes from the Greek and Latin Vulgate Virgin, and it's really get it from... The numbering, uh, it's the major focus of the book in the first four chapters and then towards the end in chapter 26. Probably the most common title that really should be used is in the fifth word in the Hebrew text in verse 1, in the wilderness. This really is a story about the wilderness wanderings of Israel. So this morning what we're going to do is start back in Genesis and connect the narrative Two numbers. It's the only way to really understand what's going on and how it all fits together. It's not some just random story God put in there because he needed to fill a book so it wasn't only 100 pages. 
And hopefully we'll see that this one story about God, how God is faithful to keep His promise to redeem people through covenants. So let's start real quick in Genesis. So the story begins, we learned a little while ago, of creation. God creates the whole world, and in creation, He creates this place called Eden. And in Eden, He places Adam and Eve. And it's there that God's presence resides, is with Adam and Eve. And they enjoyed the presence of God. Of course, what do we learn? Very early in the story, they fall. And that fall causes something we don't necessarily always think about, separation between humanity and God. So God places them outside of the garden and outside the original design of being in the presence of God. And now they are underneath a fallen curse. The earth is cursed, they are cursed. But in this fall, God does not leave the original design untapped. He does not leave it alone. He comes back to Adam and Eve and in their punishment gives them a promise. And the promise is to restore the original design, to be in His presence. And the one one that's going to restore that original design, the original purpose of creation, was going to be the seed of Eve. As we learned, never in the Bible is there described to be a seed from a woman. It's always the seed from a man. But this one is foreshadowing that of Mary. Jesus is born of a virgin. So we are told, for the beginning of the story in Genesis 3.15, there's disaster and God immediately steps in and provides grace and mercy and promises that one is going to come and crush the head of Satan and fulfill the promise and restore back what has been lost, which is communion with God. Well, this detail is uh, expanded in the life of Abraham. Now, if you know anything about the life of Abraham, he was a pagan moon worshiper. He was not a faithful man. He was not a good man. Even after you know, he came to know God, he was a horrible man. He kept uh, lying about his wife and sleeping with other women. Not a good moral character. But through God's promise to Adam and Eve, he furthers this promise with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, who is very old and has no children, that through him this mighty nation is going to come and this nation is going to bless all the nations. And there's land promises. But more importantly, there's a promise of salvation that's coming through the line of Abraham. And we read, as the story goes on, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, that wonderful story of God's faithfulness, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all unfaithful. At the end of the book, there are 70 people who end up going into the land of Egypt to be saved. So that gets us into the book of Exodus. So, so far, man is unfaithful, God is faithful. God promises to save men do everything they can to break that promise, but yet God proves himself faithful. So in Exodus, they've been in Egypt for 400 years. And what do we learn? God is faithful to his promise. Over a million people now exist in the nation of Israel. So large, the Egyptians are a little nervous about this. What do they do? They put them into slavery. So the Exodus story is God who comes in, who's been silent for 400 years. No one knows who God is. They know that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we learn very early on in Exodus They have no idea who God is. Moses even has to say, what name will I give them to describe who you are? And he gives them the name Yahweh. So God comes in, redeems his people, brings them out of Egypt into the desert, makes a covenant with them, gives them the Ten Commandments. And of course, we learn it's not very long after the covenant is made, the covenant is broken. Clearly, Israel cannot keep the covenant. And we learned back when we started Genesis that the whole book of Genesis was given to the Israelite people 
in the wilderness because they had no idea who God was. So Moses writes Genesis to talk about God being the creator and the redeemer of his people. And then that leads us into the book of Leviticus. Now at this point, it's very clear, these people cannot keep a covenant. They are pagan as far as you can get. They, uh, immediately Moses leaves up the mountain, they make a golden calf. They clearly don't understand what does it mean to be in a relationship with a holy God. God's original design is to be in the presence of men. So God in His grace gives them the Levitical law. He gives them the law. Now when we think about the book of Leviticus, we don't think about the word grace. Most of us don't even think anything other than, what a weird book. But Leviticus is a book about grace. And it's strange to say that, but it's also a beautiful book because God, with people who have broken continually their promise and the covenant they've made, God once again comes in and says, in grace, I'm still going to provide a way for you to be in my presence. You'll still reside within me, and this is how it will happen. And he gives them the, the means by which they can come into his presence. Now, it is limited because of their frailty, and we learned about that. But ultimately, Leviticus is a book of God providing grace to those who want to be in His presence. And Israel wanted to be in God's presence. Because in the presence of God, there's protection, provision, and joy. And we learn about that throughout the Old Testament. And that finally brings us to Numbers. So the covenant's made, it's broken. God gives them a full spectrum with a temple of how to live and and reside in the presence and the benefits. And that's where the story picks up in Numbers. Now, in chapters uh, 1 through 10, they're kind of wrapping up the last year at Mount Sinai. And there's instructions on how they are to set up their camp with the holiness of God in the center. And there's all these details. When you read the details, it's kind of boring. You don't understand why they're there. But if you understand what, that everything has a purpose and it's pointing towards a function. For instance, the entire camp, and you read how Judah's supposed to be at the head, and, and all of these camps circle out almost in like this big cross. Because the point of it was for Israel constantly reminded that Yahweh is at the center, that God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people, and their protection as a people. It's symbolizing God's existence there. Now, he also provides additional laws for them, for the holiness of the camp. They're about to go into a pagan land where there's other peoples that are going to be influenced by it. And so he says, here's some additional information you're going to want so you can stay in my presence. And then they move. Now that they, have, now that they are ready to begin their journey, God would lead his people by moving his presence by a cloud. You've probably heard this before as a symbol. And as that cloud would move, that was the presence of his holiness. And wherever it moved, the people would follow, bringing the Ark of the Covenant. If you have your Bibles, look at Numbers chapter 9. Look at that. We already covered nine chapters. See, we're moving quick. <laughs> Numbers chapter 9, verse 17. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there were the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Now, up to this point, there has been some bumps in the road, as we've learned in Exodus. Israel really hasn't understood what it meant to be a covenant people with a holy God, but the slate has been cleared. The temple is set, the people are organized, everybody's working together, 
Now it's time to move. And they've been given this second chance. God is still going to make good on His promise to bring them into the land. This is the whole purpose of Numbers. We're going to bring the fulfillment of the promise and we're going to go into the land. So the people are organized, ready to travel, and when they hit chapter 11, this is where everything goes wrong, yet again. See, the journey from Mount Sinai, where they've been for a year, to the promised land is only like two weeks. It's not a long journey to move that many people, over a million or so. But that journey ends up taking them 40 years. Two-week journey, 40 years. Now, Israel has only been traveling at this point in chapter 11 for three days. Okay? Three days, and when they reach the first resting spot, they finally speak out. And this is what they say. Look at Numbers 11, 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Ouch. Even after God punishes them, and gives them a warning, the complaining doesn't even stop after chapter 11. So Moses comes to them, Moses comes to God and says, hey, the people are, com- are asking if you'll stop burning them. God graciously stops burning them. <laughs> but the people begin to complain about not having food. They once did in Egypt, and want to go back to Egypt. So it doesn't matter. They've quickly forgot. And it gets worse in chapter 12. And Moses' brother and sister, who are the closest to him, helping them lead the children of Israel, they go against him. And they start to badmouth Moses in front of everyone. So God pulls them aside, it's a fascinating story, into the tent of meetings. And he shows up in this pillar of fire and confronts them verbally, which sounds terrifying. And then gives Miriam leprosy. God graciously listens to Moses and only gives it to her for seven days, but as a punishment, as a warning not to badmouth Moses, who God assigned as the leader. And in chapters 13 through 19, they finally reach the wilderness in Paran. All kinds of crazy stuff's going to happen here. This is kind of the final resting place before they were to go into the promised land. So they're going to get all their affairs ready, they're going to move in and march in and take the promised land. Well, in chapters 13 through 15, we come to the famous story of the 12 spies. How many of you grew up singing the song about the 12 spies, right? Ten were bad, and two were what? Good. Great song, right? (laughs) So, ten spies come back and report that it's too dangerous to go into the promised land. They would not survive. They would be killed off. Their children would be killed off. And two spies come back, right? Joshua and Caleb. And report how wonderful the land is. It's everything God promised it it would be. It's full. Very different from what they are in Paran. It's a desert. And through the power of God, they could take the land. Well, these ten spies whip up the entire nation into a frenzy. And even after God has burned them and warned them not to do this, including they all saw Miriam with leprosy. She was put outside the camp they still react out of their rebellion. They decide to assign themselves a new leader instead of Moses, and that new leader, they want him to take them back to Egypt, back to the very place where they were enslaved and in bondage. God's response to Moses is key to the narrative. 
So look at chapter 14. Turn over to 14. Take note that God is using this situation with the spies to remind the reader of his faithfulness to them, even though they remain unfaithful to him. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite all of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought us up this people in your might from among them. They will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a fire a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nation who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he, killed, he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and trespasses and transgressions. But he will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven these people from Egypt until now. Okay, it's a pretty good plea. Now, there's a whole debate out there whether God changed or Moses changed the mind of God. We're not going to talk about that this morning. You want to talk about that, we can talk about it afterwards. But God in his sovereignty already knew from the beginning to the end what was going to happen. But this is for our benefit, to understand just how offensive it is to God. He wants to wipe them out. And he's already done this once before. Go back and read Genesis 6. Moses reminds God of the promise that he made and, and asks God to show grace. So this is what he says in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of, these, and none of those who despise me shall see it. So in the end, God ends up giving the people what they want. They didn't want to go into the land. So he says, fine, you won't go into the land. You'll die outside. You'll die in the wilderness. Only your children will go in. It's hard to believe, but the story actually gets worse. I mean, you think this is like they're about to go into blissfulness, like a recreation of almost Eden. And so God takes it away from them. You think there might be a little bit of heart change. No. Chapters 16 to 7, we read of the rebellion of Korah, of Korah and the sons of Levi. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, even one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Why is it that you think you can lead us? Moses finally creates a test for them. Say, okay, fine. If you don't think that I'm the one that should be in charge, which clearly has been demonstrated, then we'll create a test for those who think they can point themselves. Look at verse 28. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that at 
has, been, that has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. So if they die of natural causes. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Shoel, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Of course, what ends up happening? The ground opens up, and they're all swallowed in. And not only that, the uh, 250 prophets that there were there, God burns them, consumes them with fire. Of course, everybody scatters and runs because they're afraid they're going to fall in. So how did Israel respond to this catastrophe? Look at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled <laughs> against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> so they blame Moses. For this. And chapters 18 through 20, they finally leave Puran. So the story's going to move on from here. And what's the narrative in chapters 18 through 20? It continues. Complaining. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Sorry, look at verse 2 of chapter 20. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. We have, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink? So they would rather go back into slavery, back into the bondage where they had no freedom to worship God, than to stay in this place. Now, they could have easily gone into the promised land in two weeks. But for 40 years, now that they're leaving Paran, that will not happen. And it is here we read Moses' sin that prevents him from going into the promised land. Look with me at verse 10. We're going to look into this story a little bit more in, in more detail next week. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Now God just told Moses, Go over to the rock and speak to the rock that the water might flow out of it to provide it for, these, for Israel. Of course, Moses doesn't do that. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Moses finally loses it. And says some pretty fallacious things. God in grace decides, even in their complaining, to grant the request. And there is really no anger that comes from him in that. Moses gets up and decides, God needs to be angry, so I'm going to be angry. And calls them rebels. And then just somehow takes credit with God for providing the water. And in chapter 21, some of the Israelites were taken captive. So it's, it's I mean, it's not over. You're thinking at this point, when's the book going to end? And this is getting... This is getting bloody. So Moses is now out. So there's like two guys left, and all the kids are going to be okay to go in. Joshua and Caleb can go into the land. So in chapter 21, some of the people are, because they're not under the protection of God anymore, they're not obeying. Some of them are captured. And they ask God to free them, and God graciously frees them. <laughs> Look at verse 4 and 5. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now they're talking about the food God had provided, which is the manna. Manna. So there's a pattern. Are you reading it? They mess up. God's gracious. They complain. Because they forget. That's the pattern. So what does God do in chapter 21? He sends a new kind of punishment. He sends snakes. And these snakes start biting them. And it is here we read of something very strange and unique. It's God's justice being transformed to a source of life for those who look to His healing. So He takes the very snake, tells Moses to put it on a staff. We'll talk about this next week. And those who look to it will be healed. And in chapters 22 through 36, the rest of the chapter, Israel reaches the plains of Moab. Now this is a very, very interesting section of Scripture. And this is how the book ends. Israelites have already defeated two kings, one in Transjordan, and then the king of the Amorites and the king of Bashan. And Balak, which is the king of Moab, consequently becomes alarmed. All right, well, this is a mass of people, like millions. They're coming through my land, and I've already seen him take over these two kingdoms. So Balaam sin, or Balak sends for Balaam, who is this pagan sorcerer. And he wants to induce him to come and cast a curse upon Israel. Of course, God intervenes, and the message comes back from Balaam and says, well, I can only bring blessings. I can't bring a curse. Because I, don't, I want you to come anyways. I want you to come anyways. And there's that really interesting story where Balaam's donkey, right? He gets on the donkey and the donkey won't go and he starts beating the donkey and all of a sudden the donkey starts talking to him. You'd think Balaam would have figured out early on, one, I can't make my own thoughts. Every time I say something, something else comes out of my mind. Now I get on this donkey and all of a sudden the donkey's talking to me. It's very strange. But three different times, finally, he gets up on the mountain and three different times, Balaam attempts to curse Israel so that Israel will be turned away And Balak's kingdom won't be taken over. And all three times, he only can bring forth blessing upon Israel. Now, before we move on, you need to understand that down in the camp, the Israelite children are in full rebellion at this moment. They are worshiping idols. They are out of control sexually. It is a mess down there. And then the third blessing comes. And Balaam stands up there and it's surprising because... He prophesies of a king who is coming, a victorious king, through Israel. And through this king, all of the enemies will be conquered. And he will fulfill the promise of Abraham. This king will. So you have this pagan sorcerer who prophesies over the children of Israel who are in sin that God's going to bless them in the midst of their sin. Now the book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count everyone once again. They take the census, the numbers once again. And that's kind of where the book ends. Now before they go in, they're going to leave behind the old generation, and they're going to leave behind Moses. And right before they leave behind Moses, Moses gives them his last words of wisdom and warning. And that speech is what we know as the book of Deuteronomy, which comes next. So Numbers feels you, it kind of leaves you at the end of feeling a little dazed and confused. What is going, like, what's the application here? Every story seems to gain in its intensity 
more death, more rebellion. And you leave this book probably feeling a little disheartened. It's not really great for toast and coffee in the morning. You might even feel a little bit, you know, superior. I'm pretty sure I would never act like this. We say to ourselves as we read this, this is crazy. I mean, if I saw a cloud representing the holiness of God, or if I saw the miracles in Egypt. But the moment you start to think that you would never behave like the Israelites, the story has worked its magic. And that's the point. You didn't realize that in reality... As you read Numbers 11 through 21, you're holding up a mirror to the one who's reading it. It's about you. you know, these stories are very like the, uh, the cartoon character drawings that you can see at a carnival. You ever seen these? The sketch artist looks at your face and takes the individual features of your actual appearance and then exaggerates them. But it looks like you. The point isn't total realism, right? Not of the sketch. Rather, it's trying, as it is in numbers, to highlight something about the human heart and mind. How fickle and short-sighted God's people, we, God's people, are become. And who can honestly say they've never really been impatient with God's timing in their lives? You know, Abraham is a great example of this going back to Genesis. As he wandered through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, he had several low moments. But in the end of his life, what is his life characterized by? Not his moral good deeds, not how well he performed. He's described by faith in God's promises despite the difficult circumstances. That's how he's described to be. Contrast this with the people of Israel had more than just divine promises to rely upon. They had saw the power of God. They saw the miracles of God in the forms of the ten plagues. They defeated of, of, of Pharaoh, everything throughout the wilderness. But these memories would end up fading the moment they faced thirst and hunger and any type of struggle. So God's verdict on Israel and Moses in the end was that they had no faith. That was the verdict. Welcome to the human condition, right? We forget to remember. We forget who we really are and who God has been for us. That's the conclusion of Numbers. Now, real quick, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul makes for us the application of Numbers. He tells us the conclusion of it, of how we should understand it. This bizarre Story. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So this is referencing what we just read, right? And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. We're going to talk about that next week. The rock that which Moses struck is a reference to Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be adulterers, as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, that take heed part, that is the mirror. That's the point. Look at numbers. And the moment you cast judgment, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. Paul says, you're actually not looking in the mirror. That is about you. You take heed to how they responded. And what does he say? And what is this way of escape that he promises The readers here in Corinthians, which is also the promise in Numbers, as we will learn next week, the way of escape is pointing to Christ. That's how we escape. The take heed part is do not rely on your own strength and your own ability. Humans easily forget. Take heed lest ye fall. Even when God disciplines people in the wilderness... He's at work behind the scenes accomplishing the ultimate purpose. And what's His ultimate purpose? Which is the whole point of the Old Testament. God's faithfulness to keep His covenant to save sinners. I think this is why it's important in all of these really dark stories. They're followed by these bizarre narratives about Balaam, this pagan sorcerer. The people in their sin, yet God is still blessing them because of His grace and because of His faithfulness. He does not bless the children of Israel through a pagan sorcerer. Because they had been faithful. I don't think there's ever a moment in numbers that they're faithful. They are faithful at being unfaithful. Maybe. It's the only way to say it. The entire narrative isn't about how awesome the Israelites are, clearly. But yet, that's how the focus of the Old Testament is being drawn to us. Look at these great characters in the Old Testament. Really, the Old Testament, it's, a, it's about the strange and wonderful way that God is going to accomplish His covenant promise to Abraham to restore divine blessing to all the nations and ultimately save sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the point. Whether Israel believes in God's promises or not, God is going to fulfill His word. So God's intention in giving us the wilderness wanderings is for us to look at the capacity of the human condition and refrain from placing any confidence in our ability. Placing no confidence in the flesh. We are to read this and not judge Israel, but see ourselves in Israel, in the same amount of need that they find themselves in. We are the people who grumble, and God is the one who is faithful. God does not save us because we are faithful. That would give us a reason to boast. And what does Ephesians 2 say? We have no reason to boast. So this leads us, as we'll see even in Numbers next week, which I'm really excited about. We're going to do two weeks in Numbers. I didn't want to try and pack it into one week. 
you can thank me for that. We'd be here till 12.30. But as we get ready to go to the table, the reason we do this on a weekly basis is that they are symbols, they are reminders. As Israel would forget the power and the glory of God, Jesus places within us what we basically call a speed bump for us to slow down and remind ourselves what it is that actually drives us, who it is that actually causes us to obey, where our faith even comes from. It comes from the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In the end, you have the picture of Jesus showing up. We're going to see four and five different times where there's types of Christ that show up. Where the hope, because it says that Abraham believed the gospel. The gospel was given to Abraham and he believed. It was very obvious that they had to put faith in something outside of themselves. David knew that there was one coming, a line from him, that outside of him there was righteousness that he had to depend on. The joy of salvation was not found in his faithfulness because he lost that. He was not faithful. He murdered. He stole. He slept with another woman. He was not a faithful man, but his joy was restored because he found his joy in the faithfulness of God in fulfilling a promise to Abraham for the salvation of all people. So when we take these elements, I encourage everyone here, do not take these because they somehow earn favor with God or somehow it reestablishes, it cleans your slate, it makes him happy with you, he's going to bless you. None of that is true. None of that's true. You see, in Leviticus, they were required to obey the law to receive blessings. Jesus comes in, fulfills the law, and says all the blessings are now yours through faith. We don't have to obey to receive the blessings of a father and, and the protection of our father. They're given to us because they have already been earned. So we come this morning not to earn, not to gain, not to reestablish something with God. We come and take the elements to remind ourselves of what's already been done. And the Old Testament is just a long illustration to remind us of why you never, ever want to come before God with your own righteousness. Because it'll torch you. You'll be consumed. That's a good reminder. You want to come dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And how do you do that? Through faith. So we remind ourselves that it's through Christ's blood and body sacrificed for us. And by faith we come into His presence safe and secure and full of blessing. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful <laughs> that You did not hold back any details of just how evil men not can be, but men are within our hearts. Jesus tells us what's, what's inside us that defiles us, not what comes out of us. We need all of the righteousness of Christ because we have nothing. Our righteousness is filthy. We can access it through faith alone. Lord, thank you for this wonderful reminder of how kind and gracious you are to desperately sinful people. In Jesus' name, amen.